Today's scripture reading is from Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Chandler, for reading that scripture for us. So beautifully, it's good to see you all this morning. Again, if we weren't, if we weren't together in the room earlier, my name's Russ Ramsey. I'm the pastor here at Christ Presbyterian Church's Cool Springs location. And uh, it's good to be with you today. So we're in this sermon series where we're, we're kind of working our way through the book of Acts, and we're at this passage uh, where a couple things happened that we referred to last week. Uh, and one of the things that we referred to last week is that the Lord has set aside his apostles to proclaim the gospel throughout the book of Acts, and one of the ways that they're... Um, one of the ways that they're given credibility is through the ability to perform signs and wonders. And so here in this passage, you, we have a miracle that's then followed by a sermon. And I'm actually going to read uh, in a little bit uh, the rest of this chapter as a part of the message. But let me set it up for you. So about, uh, my wife and I lived in St. Louis for about five years uh, when I was going to seminary. And it was my introduction to Major League Baseball. And it was a great introduction to Major League Baseball because, one, it was the St. Louis Cardinals, but two, it was the year. So we started seminary the year that the Cardinals signed a uh, player by the name of Mark McGuire, uh, and the Cubs had Sammy Sosa, and the home run race was on. And I know it's complicated. There were things going on, uh, but at the time... It was electrifying, and, and it, was, it was the narrative, it was the story uh, in St. Louis, and, um, and for whatever reason, seminary students got baseball tickets like, like a kid getting tickets at skee-ball, like, like people would just give us uh, tickets to Cardinal games all the time, and so I, I must have seen at least 40 St. Louis Cardinal games over the course of the five years that we were there. And uh, every single time that I left the stadium by a particular way to get on the Metrolink to go back to our parking lot, uh, and this was almost every time I left the stadium, I would pass a man in a wheelchair 
Uh, and, and he was just there, and it was the same guy all the time, and he was stationed at the same spot, just west of the main gate of the stadium, holding out a Cardinal's souvenir cup asking for money. And he was this permanent fixture there in downtown St. Louis, part of the, uh, the games that were happening. By the way, the music that you're hearing right now is our children learning all kinds of amazing things about the love of Jesus and participating in it. But I'm telling you a story right now. So eyes on me. So here's this guy, and he's there all the time, and he's holding the St. Louis Souvenir Cardinals Cup, and he's, and he's panhandling. And, and I think about that guy when I think about this passage. And the reason I do is because this guy was a fixture there in downtown St. Louis. Um, and so in a way, you could, you could say to somebody, hey, have you ever seen the guy who sits and you know, holds the cup? And if people have been to Cardinal games, they'd be like, yeah, I know who you're talking about. And there's a little bit of a, I don't know if celebrity is the right word, but let's just use it for now. There was, a, there was kind of a mix of a, a certain kind of, of celebrity to this guy being this fixture who was there because he was really gregarious and, and fun, uh, you know, and so he was, but he was there all the time. And so I imagine that the, the beggar in this text was, was like that, that everybody would have known him because every day he was placed at the same gate. He was placed at the temple gate called Beautiful. And the reason he was there was because it was a very strategic place to garner sympathy because the people who were passing through that gate were people who were on their way to worship. And so they were in a mindset of worship and generosity, and so that's where he would be. And he was this person who then became this kind of strange mix of, of poverty, if, uh, poverty and celebrity, if you will, in the fact that he was known. And so when he saw Peter and John, he asked them for money. And it's likely that this guy was regarded as many people in his position would be today, that at most he would be often completely ignored. Uh, At best, he would be given uh, a pittance, something that would help him through the day, but but certainly wouldn't, wouldn't change his life, and was probably seldom looked in the eye. But when Peter and John passed him, they looked at the man and they asked him, to look at them. And the man looked at them, and he was expecting them to give something. And then Peter said, silver and gold have I not, in the old King James. And you can imagine that his face just kind of fell, you know, like maybe he's about to be given a tract after lunch on Sunday. But Peter quickly followed up, and he said, but what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, this man who had been crippled from birth was given the full strength of a man. I mean, imagine it. Imagine it. This person who was a fixture, who was known for being always there, always unable to walk, always having to be carried. And his atrophied, lifeless legs became strong. How strong? Strong enough that he could leap for joy. We went on a backpacking trip this past week. About 11 guys from this church went, and we learned about the strength in our legs. Um, There are 11 guys in this room who can't leap right now. 
Um, but this guy could. He leapt for joy, praising God, and then he went and told as many people as he could what had happened. And since he was this permanent fixture there at the Temple Gate Beautiful, it's no surprise that people recognized him. And they said, we know who you are, and we've never seen you on your feet. We've never seen you able to do this, and they're amazed. And in the space of a day, this man just shed his poverty And he doubled his celebrity because he's the guy who his whole life was paralyzed and and helpless and had to be carried to this place where he would beg. And now he's walking around and dancing for joy on these legs that have been miraculously transformed. And this healing becomes one of those things that people just can't ignore. It makes them ask the question. I mean, you could imagine it. It, can, it makes you ask the question, what happened here? Because this doesn't happen, what happened to this guy. And the healing becomes a catalyst for Peter to preach a sermon. It's actually his second sermon in the book of Acts in which he bears witness to Christ. And so when the people saw the sign, what they did is they flocked to the apostles in amazement. They said, you got to tell us what's going on. And what followed is a reminder, it, it reminds me of, um, of a Flannery O'Connor short story, uh, which are often st- stories of, of, of poor families who are living routine lives, uh, and then they're interrupted by some sort of event that sends them kind of careening into this epiphany, often about Christ, which always seems to catch both the characters and also the readers off guard when it happens. So it's, it's the kind of thing where you think the story is going one way, and then Jesus comes into the story and into the discussion, and then it just heads into this unanticipated direction, and then you realize after that the entire story has been building up specifically to that, to this reveal about the person of Jesus Christ, but still, it catches you by surprise. And this is the way of Jesus. This is the way of Jesus. Is, is he, you know, he told parables all the time, and one of the reasons he told parables is because storytelling is a, is a, is a Trojan horse for the truth, that you can sneak past the gates of people's defenses if you do it by, by telling them a story rather than preaching at them uh, with, with, with these words that can be so direct sometimes. But one of Flannery O'Connor's famous characters from A Good Man is Hard to Find said it well as to what happens when Jesus enters the story. And what he said is, Jesus thrown everything off balance. And that's what he does. And so this astonished crowd, they run to Peter and John because they're wondering, like, do you have for us some of what you had for this guy? Because we're interested in that. They wanted to, they even needed to know, how did you do that? And so they become a captive audience. We're all ears. And they're captivated by their astonishment at what Peter and John had done. But as Peter is going to then say in his sermon, they're also captives to their own ignorance of Christ because they live in a world where what happened to this guy is impossible. And now that's being challenged. And so what happens is 
Peter immediately deflects any glory that's being given to him or to John, and he deflects that to Christ, and then he preaches an unflinching sermon about Jesus to people who are hanging on every word, and we need it. What's the sermon? I'm going to read it for you. It's short, and then we're going to talk about it. It says this, uh, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, uh, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, and when he had decided to release him, oh, and he had de- when he had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one. This is the sermon he's given them. You denied the holy and righteous one, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. And to this we are witnesses. And by his and his name, by faith in his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as also did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled." Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophet long ago. And he continues on. But I'm going to stop it right there because he just continues to unfold the Old Testament story. But it's a model, this sermon is a model for what the Christian witness is. And it's, it's not super palatable these days uh, because it is, it is three things. It's Christ-centered. So you, it's never a sermon about a God as this general being who's just cool with everything. It's focused on Christ. It's biblical, meaning it's tied to the pages of Scripture. He goes back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and it's challenging. It's challenging. Repent, therefore, because you killed the author of life. Those are words that were in that sermon. This sermon is Christ-centered, and it's, and it's biblical. It's Christ-centered because he makes it plain that he is talking about Jesus of Nazareth specifically. It's biblical because he says that Jesus is God's anointed one spoken of by the prophets Moses and Samuel and the, the patriarchs. It's, it's, so it's Christ-centered and it's biblical, but it's also very, very challenging. And, and we need very much to hear Peter's challenge too because it is one hardly ever heard anymore in our day and age because it's a challenge of being guilty of the death of Christ. At the heart of the gospel, 
that the center of the gospel is understanding and accepting that you, you, are guilty of the death of Jesus. You are. I am. And you may be thinking, I thought we were a grace-centered church here, so why would we be focusing on guilt? And the answer is because you can't know grace unless we know what we're guilty of, that we're guilty of the death of Christ. Our culture wants to find hope in denying the reality of our sinful hearts, that God grades on a curve, that he's generally pleased with most everything that we do except for the big mess-ups. But the gospel is, that's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is, it's not only acknowledging the reality of sin, but it's indicting every single one of us as responsible for the death of Jesus Christ because of our sin. And Peter, he, he just doesn't pull any of these punches. He has this captivated crowd who has seen the miracle, wants to know what's going on with him. And he says about Jesus, you handed him over to be killed, though Pilate was willing to release him. You disowned him. You asked that a murderer be released in his place. You disowned the holy and righteous one. You killed the author of life. And many in that crowd were probably there during the crucifixion. Many in that crowd likely cried out for Jesus' crucifixion. Some of them may have been in the temple court or the, the courtyard where, where they demanded the release of, Bar, of Barabbas from Pilate and insisted on the death of Jesus. But that's not the main justification for Peter's accusation of their guilt. He said their chief sin was disowning God's anointed Messiah. What did they miss? Why was he coming? Why did God send him? What sent Jesus to the cross? Was it, was it, well, the Roman court sent him to the cross, or the Jewish leadership sent him to the cross? No. What Peter is saying is your sin sent him there. Your sin, and that's the hard truth of the gospel, is that we are guilty of the death of Christ. That the reason he came was because of our sin, to be a perfect, atoning sacrifice for the full measure of your sin and mine. And that means that we're guilty of his death. But this is where the heart of grace comes in, and it's in Peter's sermon here. Because he doesn't just end it that way. He doesn't tell them all this to say, you're not entitled to know by what power we healed this man because you're guilty of killing the Messiah. He says, you're asking the question, by what power do we do these things? And I'm answering the question. Part of what you have to understand to get the answer is your, you, the blood of Jesus is on your hands. And the news sinks in kind of slowly for people. I can imagine the expressions on the faces in the crowd that some of them would have changed, gone from this kind of excited sort of smiling sense of wonder, like, I can't, I wonder what he's going to say, to, to, to kind of starting to maybe 
look down at the ground or, or maybe uh, go silent or maybe reach a point where you're like, I'm done listening. I'm not going to listen to anything. You're offending me, right? But Peter's saying, you ask a question, I'm answering it, and Jesus thrown everything off balance. There was something peculiar about Peter's indictment of them that moves me. And it's that twice in his sermon, he said to the crowd, you disowned him. You disowned him. It's the very thing Peter had done. If there's no grace and hope in this sermon, why is Peter walking up to the edge of that? You disowned him. He had disowned Jesus in a way that was even more indicting than the crowd because they didn't know Jesus. They didn't know he was the Messiah. Peter even says, you were acting in ignorance. But Peter wasn't. In fact, in Mark 14, it's that passage where Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist back from the dead. Some say Elijah. Some say one of the prophets. And he said, okay, what do you guys think? And Peter's the one who speaks, and he says, you're the Christ. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus tells him, this wasn't revealed to you by man, but this was revealed to you by the Spirit of God himself. Peter knew who Jesus was. He knew who he was disowning. And he did it three times at the accusation of a servant girl. And now he's here indicting them. On what grounds did Peter stand to preach this sermon? Why would he have the nerve to accuse them of disowning Christ? It's on the grounds that this sermon was not merely intended to show them their guilt. It wasn't merely intended to show them their guilt. It was intended to show them the grace of God toward the guilty. The grace of God toward sinners who are guilty of the death of Christ. And that is all of us. And Peter tells them, repent. Repent and turn to God, which is literally in the Greek, the word flee to God. So it would have been a mostly Jewish audience who's listening to Peter. And Peter says, flee to God. And it's most certainly an Old Testament reference that they would have understood about these Old Testament cities of refuge. So in the Old Testament, there were these cities that were labeled and and kind of defined as cities of refuge. And what they were for is if you were guilty of killing somebody by accident, killing somebody inadvertently, you could flee to one of these cities and you would be protected. And Peter is telling the people, God himself is your city of refuge. Flee to him. Flee to him from your guilt. Run to him. Trust in the refuge that he provides. What is that refuge? It is the life 
and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for you on your behalf. And then he tells them in verses 19 and 20, when you flee beneath the refuge of Christ, your sin is forgiven and you are restored to God. Jesus thrown everything off balance. There's a man begging by a temple gate. Peter and John perform a miracle. The people say, explain this to us. And the answer to their question is, God is a refuge for your guilt. Your sins are forgiven. You are restored. Peter's indictment is that we are guilty of the death of Jesus Christ. That's a strong indictment, and it's clear. And it happens, by the way, throughout the book of Acts over and over and over. It's always in the sermons. And the promise of the gospel is that when we turn to Christ, our sin is wiped away. And the one that we have sinned against forgives us. So, what's going on in your life where you need to hear that? Maybe you have a secret sin in your life that you carry around like a burden. Maybe it's even ongoing. And you feel suffocating under the burden of it. Maybe it's something that you did a long time ago and you only did once but you feel the weight and the burden of the guilt. And maybe there's some relational work you you do have to do with that still, but you feel imprisoned by the walls of the city your guilt has constructed. And you may feel that the guilt is just too much to escape and there's no hope for that. That it would be as likely as a beggar who has been paralyzed his entire life leaping around an hour from now. But if by fleeing to God, you are released from your guilt of the death of Jesus, which Peter says is the case, then know that you must also be released from the guilt of of a secret sin. So repent and flee to God. How can you know that your sins are forgiven? Because of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. God could have decided not to send Jesus, but he didn't. Knowing our guilt... He sent Jesus to die for it, to die for us. And he's thrown everything off balance. And he knows everything about you. Everything. Flee to God. Let me pray. Father, I I wonder what it would have been like to hear Peter preach this sermon on the heels of a 
miracle. We know from the next chapter that the religious people, the religious leaders in particular, were annoyed um, because Peter and John were presuming to preach with some expertise and authority on the Old Testament. And we're not happy that they were being implicated in the death of Jesus being something that made them guilty of anything. But I wonder about the other people. I wonder about the people we don't, we don't hear their stories who are, who are processing their own lives and their own hearts. I wonder about this for our, the room here. As we hear this story, we see your glory and your power on display in the miracle, which raises questions. And then the answer being one that would drive us to acknowledge our guilt and to flee to the refuge of the grace of God that is found in Christ. Lord, we thank you that you don't merely call us to acknowledge our guilt and then despair, but that you call us to acknowledge our guilt so that we can see the magnificence of the grace that is made available to us by the blood of Christ. And so help us to rest in that. Help us to see it. Help us to have the courage, and not only the courage, but also the humility to acknowledge our need and to flee to you. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.